As we come to our time of the study of the Word of God this morning, we are returning to the book of Revelation chapter 20. We're continuing our look into what we've entitled for this entire series, The Final Scenes of History. Mankind is always curious about future things. We want to know what's going on before We want to know so we might even better prepare or even attempt to avoid what the future might hold. In fact, I was doing some research on this this week. You may be interested to know that the psychic industry in just the United States alone is a booming industry. I was quite surprised. It is reported to be a $2.2 billion industry, just in America. There are really, or nearly 81,000 psychic businesses in the United States. They employ nearly 84,000 people, all of them attempting to see the future. None of this, of course, includes the Millions of books and trinkets that are sold by these places. People attempt to try to forego the events of life as they come. It's incredible. Our world is just obsessed with the future, with knowing the future. And they pay exuberant amounts of money to charlatans in order to attempt to see the future before it happens. And all of it is psychic hocus-pocus. All of it is foolishly born out of the schemes of Satan. None of it is real. All of it is foolhardy. All of it is fake. All of it is deception. All of it is an attempt to know something that cannot be known on the human realm. It is meant to deceive and keep humanity chasing after the lie. But as Christians... We know different. We don't need to wonder about the future. Why? Because we have been told about the future. And we have been told about the future by the only one who knows the future. And he has told us free of charge. From the middle of chapter 19 in Revelation, going all the way through to chapter 22 in verse 5, we are seeing the final scenes of all of history. All the history books that will be written when history passes have already been written by God because God has planned it all and he's telling us the final scenes of history as he uncovers them to John in this vision. And in the final chapter, uh, or, or in these final things, we've already seen five of these events take place. We've already seen the supreme ruler returning, chapter 19, verse 11 and following. Jesus Christ coming on uh, His power and with truth, coming with those from heaven. 
the great supper of the carnivorous birds of the earth take their place also. We, we've seen that take place in verses 17 of chapter 19. Then the slaughter, of course, of all the tribulation wicked, all those who, who were in the tribulation who refused to follow Christ, all of those who had followed the Antichrist. Uh, Christ comes and slays them in one fell swoop, and the earth is cleansed, really, of the tribulation wicked. Chapter 19, verse 19. And then, of course, we saw the scene of Satan being arrested. Satan snatched up, thrown into the temporary prison of God for a thousand years, the abyss. And then, of course, those of the first resurrection are are raised. Those who who have believed in Jesus Christ, those who were part of the first half of the tribulation, those who were martyrs in the second half of the tribulation, they too are raised in this great resurrection. Satan, after the thousand years, is released so that he might deceive and be fully vanquished in the lake of fire. And now we come in verse 20 to the the sixth and the seventh scene. And those of the second resurrection, those of the second death, they meet their fate before our holy God. This is a a most sobering text. Think of all of the messages that Revelation teaches. This section is the most sobering. Follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 20. John says, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If anyone denies the doctrine of hell. They have to remove or completely ignore this passage. If you're going to deny the doctrine of hell, you better take out the exacto knife out of your pocket and cut this page of Scripture right out of the text itself. Because it is clear from here in this passage alone that there is a hell. That hell is real and that hell is no party place. This is a very sobering piece of Scripture. And it is with these words that the sad history of this earth comes to a close. This is the final judgment of men. And it presents for us here, as John lays it out, it presents for us four features that are involved in this judgment. 
Four simple features, just by way of outline. There is the place of judgment. The place of judgment. There is the person who judges. Person who judges. And thirdly, there is the people who are judged. And then last, the penalty of those who are judged. The place, the person, the people, and the penalty. These are the four free features that we're going to look at as we walk through this text this morning. Let's just take these one by one as we look at the future. Free of charge by the one who knows the future because he has ordained it. First, the place of this judgment. The place of this judgment. Verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne. You can stop right there. And I saw a great white throne. As we already know, this is now the sixth time that, or since really chapter 19, verse 11, that John uses those familiar words as a change of scenery. I saw this happening. And here it introduces to us a great white throne. We haven't seen this throne before. If we were reading it in the original language, if you had a, a Greek text in front, in front of you and you were reading it in that language, the emphasis here is on the throne itself. John saw a throne, great and white. The emphasis is on the throne itself. This throne is is white, and, and that simply indicates to us that it is uh, enthroned in absolute righteousness. In other words, from this place, from this place of judgment, is a place from which absolute righteous justice will be poured out. Seems rather interesting to me that even in our own court system here in the United States, and really around the world, the place in our society where justice is dispersed. It seems rather interesting to me as I was reading through this, and I'm saying, wow, this is just absolutely amazing. And then I begin to think about where we live, and those who do the applying of justice, the judges wear black robes. I don't think that means our system is one that is purposefully unjust or even wicked. But it bears a striking contrast to this divine courtroom, doesn't it? Here the reality is a absolute righteous justice. The throne of God's justice is blazing white. It is righteous altogether. As we've been going through Revelation, we, we have seen thrones before. When Christ dealt with the wicked men back in chapter 14 and verse 14, he was seated, interestingly enough, on a white cloud, it says. A white cloud. In chapter 19 and verse 11, when we began these visions, Christ came and he was riding on a white horse. Now, chapter 20 and verse 11, we see a white throne. 
In the first two visions of Jesus Christ, in chapter 14, verse 14, chapter 19, verse 11, uh, there was an element of symbolism in the reality of all of that. In other words, uh, what John was seeing was actually what he was seeing, but those things represented other things, the, the cloud and the horse. John saw the cloud, John saw the horse, but, but they symbolized other things. But here, this is no symbol. The throne is reality. It's reality. The final judgment of the wicked will be carried out in full agreement with the principles of absolute righteousness and absolute justice. The throne represents pure righteousness. And it represents pure power. It is a great throne. It doesn't mean massively huge. That means massively powerful. This is a great throne because this is God's throne. And it's ironic, isn't it? It's ironic when we get to this point in Revelation and you think about the history of the world and you think about the reality that this is the final time mankind throughout the entire history of mankind up to our time and to our time into the future when this very thing takes place, man will flaunt his independence from God throughout his entire existence. Man will say, I don't need God. God, you are irrelevant to me. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that man even goes so far to the place that he's even denied God a place in his own creation. Man worships the creature rather than the creator. It says in Romans chapter 1. And yet there is coming this day The day when they will stand before this throne and its absolute authority. It can be denied no more. And so, John begins with that sobering thought. The place of judgment is the very throne of God. And it is a frightening reality. Frightening reality. And John moves us on, secondly, to the person who will judge. To the person who will judge. Notice he says, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. This is the one who will judge. No name is given here in Revelation chapter 20. All we have is the simple words, him who sat upon it. Who is that? Who is this one who is actually meeting out the the righteous, absolute justice of God himself? For us to have a definitive answer, we, we have to turn to other scriptures. When we do that, we are clearly, or, or we come to the very clarity, the reality, that this is none other than Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? Go with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and we'll hear the words of Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 5, of course, Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry is always being 
or at least at this point in his ministry, always being questioned by those in religious authority of his day. And Jesus Christ, in verse 17, says to those who are questioning him, the Pharisees, after he heals a man, says, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. In other words, my, my, I and my father are one. That's, that's the essence of what he's saying. We're e- equal. You say, well, how do you know that? Because verse 18, for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They hated Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ claimed equality with God. So Jesus begins to speak to them. And he says this to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you might marvel. Jesus just takes it head on. He says, listen, you think I'm God? Okay, watch this. I can't do anything unless I see the Father do something. And if you think this was a big deal, just wait. Bigger deals are coming. And he says in verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son of Man also gives life to whom he wishes. He says, you think... Healing this guy on the Sabbath was a big deal. Watch this. There's going to be a resurrection that you that will blow your very mind. And it too will happen on the Sabbath. And then he says in verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone. Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. You say, Why? Verse 23, in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. You see, why is God going to, God the Father uh, in the Trinitarian Godhead, why has it been such that God the Father is, is passing on all authoritarian judgment to the Son who is equal with God the Father? It's so that all might honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Jesus Christ is going to judge. A bit farther down, verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Verse 26, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself, and He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Uh, That's just longhand for saying He gave Him authority because He is God. Jesus Christ is the one who will judge. Paul said the same thing to Timothy as he exhorted young Timothy in the faith as he was going to carry on the ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. 
You better preach the word, Timothy. That's what he says in verse 2. You better go and you better tell them exactly what God said. You better tell them in season and out of season. You better tell them with great patience and instruction. You better not veer from that in any kind of way. Why? Because they one day will have to stand before a holy God, a holy judge, and they will answer for their deeds if they do not know Jesus Christ. Paul's saying to Timothy, listen, Timothy, there's nothing else that can save people than that. And so you preach the word. Don't preach your fancy whims. Don't talk about the events of the day. Don't try to be cute and fancy when you tell people. You just preach the word. You tell them what God said. You do that whether they want to hear it or whether they don't want to hear it. In season and out of season with great patience and instruction. You do that. Why? Because there's coming a day when men won't want to hear it anymore. And they'll gather for themselves those who will tell them what they want to hear. You just preach the word. Why? Because Jesus Christ is going to judge. So it's clear when you go back to Revelation chapter 20. It is clear that this is not God the Father doing the judging. This is Christ. And all men will face Christ. And if you do not know Christ by faith, you will face Christ as a judge. Philippians 2 says all men will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I find it very disturbing that for some this may not seem all that frightening. Some people may think, no big deal. No big deal. After all, Jesus is just a God of love. Notice, notice in verse 11 the terror of this scene. For every Christ-rejecting sinner, the terror of this scene ought to be the very fact that the one sitting on the throne is the very one from whom earth and heaven flee away and no place is found for them. The very creation that He created runs from Christ. In fact, dissolves into nothingness because of the one who is sitting on the throne. If this isn't frightening, that ought to frighten everybody. This is the uncreation of the creation right here. In one simple phrase, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away. No place was, this is the uncreation. You say, how how is all that going to take place? Peter wrote about it. Peter wrote about it in 2 Peter. And he talked about the day of the coming of the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 3 of Second Peter. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. Following after their own desires and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it is as from the beginning of creation. They're saying, listen, the world's gone on for thousands of years. Christ isn't going to come. Big deal, big deal, big deal. Verse 5 says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and earth 
was formed out of water and by water. In other words, God spoke and it became. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The same one who created it out of nothing is the very one who spoke the rains from heaven and broke the barriers of the earth so that water flooded up in the days of Noah and flooded the entire surface of the earth. Scientists try to go around, try to explain, no, that really didn't happen. It was a localized flood. Listen, you don't need a scientific explanation. What you need is God. God who can bring something from nothing has no problem bringing water on the whole earth. And Peter says, but the present heavens and earth, by the word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Listen, don't think the waiting of time means that God doesn't isn't going to do this. Time is nothing to God. He doesn't operate in time. God has created time for the sake of his redemptive purposes, but God isn't bound by time. So a thousand years pass before God like one day passes. It's it's nothing. The Lord is not slow about his promise. See, he's patient toward you. Why? Because Because he wants none to perish whom he's called. Uh, They're not going to perish. All who God is going to save will be saved. None will not repent. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, verse 10. What's going to happen? The heavens will pass away with a roar and and the elements will be destroyed. The word destroyed is luo in the Greek language. It means go to nothing. Completely, utterly gone. The word elements there is the word for the the most minute particles that were created. The neutrons and protons and those things that hold everything together. Completely dissolve away into nothingness. Destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. The uncreation. Here's Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. John sees all of that take place that Peter wrote about in the future and John sums it up in the words that God tells him to write. Here it is. Presence and earth are gone. In a moment, Christ on the throne, they, they can't even stay around him. Listen, it's absolutely true that Christ reigns on the throne in the millennial kingdom here on the earth. And he has graciously identified his own with himself. We are priests of God. We are ruling with God in the heavenly in the kingdom of earth as Christ rules for a thousand years. But after that time, Christ will be judge. And there will be no mercy. There will be no grace. There will be absolute justice. Mankind may ignore his power. They might ignore that, but the current heaven and current earth will not ignore his power. And they will dissolve from existence. So here in verse 11, there is nothing but a throne and the one on it and limitless eternity. 
think about it with me. Think about what John is seeing and, and, and what we ought to be seeing. The, the very face that mankind spit upon. The very one that mankind beat with their weapons of injury. The very one that mankind mocked as worthless. And the Scriptures say, who, who was one who you wouldn't even want to look upon. That very one now strikes utter terror in the entire cosmos. The entire created order isn't even hanging around. One author has written concerning this, and I think it's important for us to contemplate it as well, and for us to just see where this fits in the chronological order of events. He says this, quote, the material creation has just fled from the presence of Christ. Now the heaven and now the new heaven, the new earth are yet to be introduced to us. You notice that in the chronological order, they don't come till verse 1 of chapter 21. And since the Bible declares that the time the, that time is part of God's creation, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, then the fleeing away of God's physical creation introduces us to timelessness. Right here we are introduced to timelessness. In other words, the moment that heaven and earth flees from the presence of Christ, or in Peter's words, the moment that heaven and earth dissolve into nothingness, time ends as well. So, the great white throne in verse 11, and this event, it's happening in a time, if we can use that, because we have to think in those ways. It's happening in a, in a moment when there is no time. In other words, it's happening in eternity. Now think about it, if that's the case, time has been created by God. God's creative order as we know it has ceased to exist and dissolve, which includes time. And if that's the case, then the consequences for those who are judged is also timeless. The judgment here is eternal. Beloved, this is the one before whom the godless will stand. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ judging from the throne in open eternity. John says, third, the people who are judged. Verse 12 says this, and I saw the dead. This is now his seventh vision or the seventh sequence in this vision. And I saw the dead the great and small, standing before the throne. Heaven and earth has fled away. All men will desire to flee. But they will be unable to flee. And now here, for the seventh time, John is focused not on the one who is judging, but on those who will be judged. And they are described here as the dead. 
I saw the dead, the necros, the corpses. I saw the corpses. This is, I think, a class of people who needs no other further definition. These are the dead. These are those who have rejected Jesus Christ. These are those who have rejected the truth of the Son of God. They have rejected the Word of God about His Son. This is every man. This is every woman. This is every child who have willfully rejected Christ. And the distinctions, listen, of the earth will no longer carry any factor before the throne of God. Notice what he says. This is the dead, the great, and the small. In other words, this is the dead from every social strata. This is the dead, those who are royal and elite, standing side by side and in the same place with those who are lowly and poor. The honors, the accolades, the, the, the patting on the back, the applause of men on the earth are irrelevant before the throne of God. Listen, people say, I wonder if I'll be good enough. None of that matters. All of those accolades, all of those goodness, all of those things are nothing before God. You will stand along with everybody else with your own bag of garbage. Each one here stands before Christ with one common identifier. Sinner. Sinner. Christ rejected. And all who throughout the entire history of the earth who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be there. No one is excluded. No one gets a pass. Every rejecter of Christ is there. You say, I won't be there if I know Jesus Christ. No, all the redeemed, uh, all of those who, who have embraced Jesus Christ by faith, They've already been raised in the first resurrection. They're already with Christ. All of us who know Jesus Christ, we're we're with Christ. And those who are left in the grave for this resurrection are the wicked. Those who have died from, from the time earth began to the time when this tragic event and fire falls from heaven to devour all those to that last scene when Satan comes out of the abyss and and deceives those of the millennial kingdom. All of those who have rejected Jesus Christ, all of those will be standing here before Christ. All of the wicked of humanity, all unredeemed. You say, on what basis? On what basis is Christ going to bring this judgment upon them? Notice, What it says in verses 12 and 13. They're standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened which is of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which was in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged. Every one according to their deeds. Is their life's deeds is the basis for which they were judged. These are the true scales of justice. It's interesting, here in our nation's capital, we have a library called the Library of Congress. It houses some 22.3 million books. 
pretty big library. And yet here we see that God has his own collection of books. And God has recorded in those books every deed of every unbeliever from every day of every moment of their entire life. And these pages will be opened and read back. And they will be read back as an indictment upon the life of each unbelieving person thinking about this as I was studying the lie of the world for the dead and the unsaved is rest in peace. People say that. Rest in peace. R.I.P. That's the greatest lie of the world. There is no place of rest and peace for those who are unsaved. There is none of that. It is clear from these verses that every fact will be weighed, every factor of their life will be taken into account, and every soul knows and will know with absolute certainty that they are receiving the perfect justice. The graphe, the graphe, the books, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's as if God has inscribed upon the books that he contains in his own divine library, all of life's deeds of all of those who have rejected his son. The book of life, the other book that's open, the book of life only contains the names of those who have embraced Christ. The rest of the books are the books of the dead. And not to have it opened would be a, a crime. It, it is opened here. The book of life is opened here not to see that maybe, maybe some of those who have deeds written in the books of, of God to as an indictment for the life, that maybe their name is written in the book of life. No, it's not there. It's not opened for that reason. It's opened to confirm the evidence that the sentence is in keeping with divine righteousness. You see, life was available. Life was offered. But it but it was rejected. It was scorned. So their names are not written here. They're not written in the book of life. And all the dead who have never truly believed are, are not in the book of life. You see, verse 13, the sea gives up its dead which were in it, and death in Hades gives up the dead which are in them. The sea gives up its dead. All those who have ever died and died at sea, cremated, uh, died in tsunamis and floods and everything else, all those who died during the days of Noah, all those who are dead who lie in the sea, and all those who die uh, and lie in the ground. That's what the death here means. The, the sea gives up its dead. Death gives up its dead. And Hades, Hades is simply that place where uh, torment of the unredeemed souls takes place. Hades is the equivalent, Old Testament, the word Sheol, the place of the dead. Hades is not hell. But it is hellish. It's a place of torment. It's a place of pain. In fact, I want us to go to the New Testament Gospels again just to show you this. Go to Luke. Very familiar passage. Really, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 and following, Jesus tells of a story, whether this was a story that Jesus was using names and, and, and 
creating this story as an illustration or whether this is a real happening, uh, some scholars debate, I believe, since Jesus was saying this, it's, it's real. Verse 19, there was a certain rich man and habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. A certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. That's not the Lazarus that Jesus raised, folks, so don't mix up that name. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. This guy was in bad straits. And it came about that the poor man died. He was carried away by the angels to Abram's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Went to the place of the dead. Notice verse 23. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Saw Abram far away, Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abram said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. Jesus isn't intimating there that because you had riches on earth, now you'll have hell in heaven, and if you have hell on earth, you'll have riches in heaven. That's not what Jesus is intimating. Jesus certainly is intimating the reality that because of your riches, you rejected the truth about Jesus Christ and eternal life, and Lazarus, even though he had no riches, was embraced and embraced by faith, the one who could save his life, and so now you're both in your perspective places. And besides, verse 26, all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. Fixed means permanent, in place, can't be changed. Why? In order that those who wish to come over here may not, and none can cross over from here to there. In other words, there's no escape from Hades itself, and those who are are in the presence of Christ prior to the uh, eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, Prior to that, they they can't have any kind of compassion to go there. It won't happen. He said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. I want him to warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Listen, send him then to to the earth. Let Let people see him. Send him there and let him be a preacher of goodness so that they might not have to come here to this place where I am, this place of torment, to Hades. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the law. They have the prophets. They have the truth of God. They have the word of God. Let them listen to the word of God. And he said, no, no. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, no, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. I love when people say, boy, I believe if Jesus Christ stood right here right now. Now he's saying, no, you wouldn't. Didn't believe that at all. Because Jesus is alive. He proved it. He rose from the dead. The, the, the grave is empty and you still won't believe. And you won't believe what God said about him. You won't believe it even if there's a miracle happening right in front of you. Hades is a place of torment. It's a hellish place. But for the Christian... But for the Christian, the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of Christ, just like Lazarus was. 
For you and I to die here, to die now, is immediate in the presence of Christ. But for those who die without Christ, for those who die before the judgment of Revelation chapter 20, and they die without Christ, their body goes into the ground, just like yours and mine may go into the ground, but their soul is kept in Hades. Their soul is in torment until the final judgment upon which they will be confined to the lake of fire forever. From Hades, there is no escape. Luke 16 is clear on that. Those who teach that you can escape this place through the prayers of those who are left to remain on the earth, like the Catholic Church calls purgatory, there is no such reality of that. There is no escape. There is no word in Scripture called purgatory. It is Hades. It is a place of hellish torment, and it will too be thrown into the lake of fire. So go back to Revelation chapter 20 because we know the place of this judgment, the throne of God. We know the person who is judging, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we know the people who are judged, all the unredeemed of all time. And so what's their penalty? What's their penalty? Verses 14 and 15, the death and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It is clear. It is clear. Every part of sin and every effect of sin are now cast into the lake of fire. Just the name alone conjures up the images that are not pleasant. Lake of fire. The evil pair of death and Hades have been the horror of mankind throughout the ages. People who are afraid to die because they know that judgment's coming, just like Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us. It has been appointed to man once to die and then judgment. Death and Hades having fulfilled their permitted role by a sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful God, they too are now cast into the lake of fire. They are cast into a fiery hell themselves. By the way, the Bible speaks of the lake of fire in other places. In fact, it's a place described by Christ in Matthew 25, 41 as everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That doesn't sound like a pleasant party place. Of course, we know that the first to enter there are the beast and the false prophet. Chapter 19, verse 20 showed us that. But they're joined by others. They're not going to be the only ones there. And in the end of the millennium, after the earth and heaven, as we know it, are are gone out of existence, those who are judged by Christ along with Satan himself here, In chapter 20, are all cast into the place of everlasting torment and pain. The fire lake. I find it sad that it's continually been the attempt of men to deny this reality. Atheists deny any question of eternal punishment comforting to a sinful soul to not think there will be eternal punishment. Atheism tries to deny it. Agnosticism and humanism try to replace 
hell with some kind of annihilation that the body's just annihilated and goes into annihilation and it's out there into nothing. Even those in liberal theology, even those in the church who are liberal, who profess to believe the Bible, they try to soften this truth by saying that, that the lake of fire is somehow symbolic of other things. That fire is not the, the real reality here, it's a symbol of other things. But I don't think the scriptures leave any doubt. This is a physical location in the heavens of God, and he has specially prepared it for the devil and his angels, and because of sin, billions upon billions of humans will share this place. And by the way, the Bible makes it clear that those who are there will face continuous torment that will last forever. Just listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 13, verses 40 to 42. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and they will throw them into the furnace of fire and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where, there, where the worm does not die and the fire, fire is not quenched. Jesus says, listen, uh, on a... On a spiritual realm, it's better for you to be maimed and be saved than to have all of your faculties and go into hell itself. It's better for you to, to lose a hand or, or lose an eye or ha, lose a foot. It's better for that to happen to you and yet you be saved than for you to have all of your faculties, all of everything, and you're thrown into hell itself where... Nothing is consumed, but it is continuously in torment forever and ever and ever. John says in verse 14, this is the second death, the lake of fire. I was thinking to myself, Sunday school as Russ was teaching about Satan himself, I was thinking, you know, the physical life is the shortest part of our eternity. We hold so strongly to it, and yet we think it's a long time, but it's the shortest part of our eternity. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The first death was spiritual. Consequences of that first death was bodily death, physical death. The body dies. Spiritually, we died in Adam when Adam sinned, and all of us were there with Adam, and the consequences of that was physical death. But through Christ, life is made available. And it's eternal life. It's not just life here. It's eternal life. But, but the reality is it has to be embraced during the physical lifetime. You see, to die physically, to lose your life physically without eternal life in Christ, without embracing Christ by faith, means that at the great white throne... 
your, your soul, which has been tormented in Hades since the time you physically died, will be rejoined with your resurrected body to stand before a holy God so that you might be sentenced to separation from God forever and ever and ever. Where? In the lake of fire. Cast into the lake of fire. That means to be, to be in that place where separation from which there is no recovery. You're in that place of torment with Satan, his demons, the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, and all who have rejected Christ. In torment forever and ever, there is no recovery, a death from which there is no resurrection. Verse 15 really puts the exclamation point on it all. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. that end the unredeemed make it clear that there is no evidence of divine life in the physical realm and their absence in the book of life confirms it their life was confirming it on the earth and here in the book of life their name is not found and that confirms it in heaven and that is a sentence to which there is no appeal Tragic, tragic end, tragic end when someone simply will reject the truth. There's a terrible finality to the scene, isn't there? One by one, like a a never-ending chain, it seems, Christ's rejectors pass before the, the great white throne and proceed to the lake of fire. Maybe it's, it's appropriate for us to end with the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. But, I don't know about you, but that's the best word in the entire Bible. But, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death itself. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Without Christ, There is only a hell waiting. Let's pray together. Father, these are indeed sobering words. What your word says is absolutely true. The wages of sin is death. Those who reject Jesus Christ's faith an eternity of death, pain, torment, hellishness. The worst that could ever be created. Why? Because it's separate from you. And yet by your grace, 
because of your great love with which you loved us, you sent your Son, God incarnate, to come to earth so that he might face the death we deserve so that we might have the life we do not deserve. We know that we can stand before you not because of what we have done, not because of any righteousness of our own, but only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ in whom we believe. And we have hope, a great hope, because we have a great Savior. And the only one who could save us from a hellish end was the great Savior who created it all and who has shown us it all and who has told us about it all ahead of time that we might believe Lord, this morning we know the words. We've heard the words. We've heard the truth. I pray. I plead that those who are here don't go from this place with a death sentence. Don't go from this place continuing to to live that foolish, God-rejecting, God-compromising kind of life. Go from this place new. Truly knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior and fully assured that one day you'll be with Him in glory. Lord, would you do that? Do that today in the hearts of these people and encourage those who know you by these truths. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.